and welcome to None of My Friends Like Comics, a podcast where a comic book enthusiast talks to a newcomer about a piece of work in the medium, and we break it down to see if my friend, a first-time reader, will pull it or drop it. I'm your host, Nick Poffenbarger, and my co-host today, for the very first time, is my good friend, Brett Scott. How's it going, Brett? Good. What's up, dorks? (laughs) This one's for all you fucking dorks out there. Comic book reading losers. (laughs) You see, we got our work cut out for us today. <laughs> I'm who the podcast is about. Yeah, yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, it's like when I think of my friends, it's like I, I started to realize um, since I just released the first episode that, uh, like, oh, actually, I have a lot of friends who like comics. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just thinking of Brett. Just not the one you hang out with all the time. Yeah, exactly. Th- no, this, I'm, I'm convinced that this is just an effort for you to finally get me to listen to you about this. It's an effort to get all of my friends to listen to me about this because I, I have a, I think I have a valid point in saying, um, my friends who do like comics, uh, most of them don't actively read them as much as I do. And if they do read, they don't really read the same stuff or we're never like in sync on it, you know? So it's a, it's a good opportunity to read something at the same time and have it fresh in our heads to actually talk about it. You know, you, um, you can go off into some really esoteric tangents while in just in casual conversation. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, oh, you lost me a long oh, time. I get ago. I get a lot of mm-hmms. But so. Oh, you should see me at fucking Christmas and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Talking to your grandma. <laughs> My grandma. Mm-hmm. So, no, but you don't understand, like, the, the state of the cosmic Marvel universe in 2006 was so dire. <laughs> like, <laughs> well. Here I am, Nick. Yeah, you, <laughs> we we got, got me. we got him here, boys. Ugh. Well, yeah. So, um, uh, just like the last episode, since this is your first episode, Brett, I'm uh, we can get this out of the way. Uh, for the listeners at home, what is your experience with comic books in general? So, I I wrote something down here. Why I don't like comics, and then <laughs> those that's a joke. I crossed out like why I don't read comics avidly. Yeah. Um. So I, I used to read like 60s Marvel. That's really like the stuff I was into when we were in middle school and high school, stuff like that. Yeah, you like the classic stuff. Yeah. And then when I was a little kid, I liked Sonic comics, you know? So like I do have a nostalgic warm spot for reading comic books and stuff. And I do like, I love, you know, Marvel and the world building and stuff like that. Yeah. The, the properties and whatnot and all that stuff. Yeah. But it just hasn't kept me into my adulthood, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think the the issue by issue like format of it just creates so much like it, it it's kind of like a choppy narrative, you know. It, yeah, it's also um, I found you know from experience you know really diving in hard like over you know what like twelve thirteen years ago that like it's very hard to find your footing. Yeah, in it. it's it's vast and daunting and expensive. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure can be to some people that's cool. Like, oh, what a it's a whole world that I can just like leap into. Yeah, but for me, it's like, you know, I really liked X Men, and then around the time I liked X Men, Beast was like a cat, and I was like, I don't like that. I don't want a fucking cat. <laughs> oh God, yeah, like like the Grant Morrison stuff, the early two thousands. Yeah, yeah, see, that's uh, that's <laughs> that's really funny like, that that's like your your pinpoint of just like 
I do not like that. <laughs> or, or like that was when the X-Men all just wore black leather jackets. Yeah. I was like, man, I want the yellow and blue shit. Mm-hmm. I like the cartoons, you know, I like, I like the way things were when I was just a pup and they shouldn't have changed it. From that <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I mean, uh, there, there's something to be said about, you know, like, um, I mean, if that would have been like your point in time where your interest would have made you actually go out to a comic book store and check something like that out, it wouldn't have grabbed you because they were doing something totally different at the time. And I think that's the case with like when most people jump on because they have this idea of like, it's usually like a singular character or something, right? Like, you know, like say I love Spider-Man and that's like, it's, that's the thing too, is if it's like a really popular character like that, that's such a goddamn rabbit hole to go down like it's like where do you start you know and like there's articles upon articles of that type of shit like for new readers you know i mean granted i will say even though it's daunting i think it's easier to find starting points now than it's ever been it is like like in middle school or or whatever i was buying those i don't know if they were called masterworks oh they were the the the, essentials right the black and white ones black and white yeah yeah so that's like i know you know i had the fantastic four Doctor Strange, Ant-Man, two of the X-Men, and then I had, like, giant size X-Men. Like, I had a ton of those, and I used to read the shit out of them. Um, So, yeah, I mean, but then, like, keeping up with what happened through the, the 80s and 90s and 2000s and then 2010s now, and it's yeah. it's just, like... Especially with the the stuff that you would gravitate towards, like, like the X-Men and stuff, which is, like, some of the most complex intertwining soap opera narrative stuff ever you know like yeah and it's just uh and like it's fucking the, hard the characters change like they change so much like now beast is like a bad guy i don't like that <laughs> he's he's been a dick for like he's, not, he's been a dick for like 20 years yeah <laughs> at least he's not a cat anymore right uh yeah no he's he's like a he's like a beast guy you know yeah okay that's good he is like a total fucking asshole though like right now he's so, just the worst yeah and i think i think that's about what i have but then like Back to kind of just the general narrative of it, the tone of it, since they're kind of so, uh, and I know this isn't, I'm speaking generally, broadly, but there are a lot of like really fast cliffhangers because they're based on like 10 page issues or whatever, 20 page. Yeah. And and, and, and they got to hook you for the next month or whatever. Yeah. And that's, it's kind of has its charm, but also it's just like, it's not the most effective way to just create, to tell a story, but it, but it does work well for like action and yeah. And on the opposite end, I mean, you do run into a lot of um, like, you know, one of my favorite writers of all time, Jonathan Hickman, um, not to say he doesn't use cliffhangers and whatnot, but like his stuff is so slow burn that like it may take like, you know, 20, 30 issues for you to really get the whole picture or something in, in a story he's doing. And that to me, I, I love that type of stuff, but it can be frustrating to read like month to month, you know? Yeah. Like it's like sometimes I'll just let like five or six issues like a trade's worth pile up so I can just binge read it like all at once, you know? Yeah. And like, I like the trade concept. I kind of wish that they would just come out in those. Yeah. Like, like this is your story done yeah. Buy it 60, hundred bucks or whatever. And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, this will last me a month. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. They, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, like speculation as to whether or not like, um, that may be like the future of like comics. Like, I don't who like, you know, who actually goes on Wednesdays and does this? Like, <laughs> I know you do, Dude, but is this like a thing? Like, uh, yeah. I mean like my, the shop I go to is super popular. Is it all 30 plus year olds? No, no. Really? It's like a little bit of everyone, man, to be honest. I mean, like, 
um, you know, I don't know how common this is at like every single shop, but I mean, there are a lot of women, kids, like parents bringing their kids in to Impossible. buy their books. No, <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> like, I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of everyone. I get, I, I, I love the, the shop that I go to. It's a, it, it, it caters to everybody and like, it's just, uh, just a good place, you know, and, and, it, and it's, it's pretty successful, you know, from, I mean, just seeing it on Wednesdays at least, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of cool because like one of the, <laughs> like, yeah, you definitely get that stereotype. And I still think that by far, you know, comics is, uh, you know, inherently like, you know, a, a boys club or whatever, you know, and, and more like people, you know, in the thirties and whatnot, or, you know, late twenties, but like, you know, there's been such a significant effort to change that over the past decade, especially. And there's so much good stuff that's come out as a result of it. You know, like, I know, I know like manga is kind of the biggest thing in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there's a ton of crossover in that aspect. Yeah. I mean, I would assume, you know, I mean like, although you'd be surprised like how hard it is or how like just unknowledgeable, like manga readers are about American comics and how American comic readers are about manga. Like they just like some of them are just, it's just such a foreign world for some reason, you know? I mean like I was that way until like a few years ago (laughs) when I started like actually reading like manga and things like that. But it's the exact same thing. You idiots. It's just, (laughs) it's just from a different part of the world, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, I, I do think that there's obvious like big differences in that department, but, uh, it, I mean, conceptually, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just comic. It's all comics, you know? I mean, it's like, uh, it's like a layman calling death metal screamo. Yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> fuck you, dude. <laughs> you don't understand. You're not fucking true. <laughs> what are you doing here? Get out of here. Ugh. But yeah, no, I am super glad to have you on because I mean, as, as we said, this, uh, whole podcast and the name of it was probably based on like me thinking about you most of the time. So like, <laughs> so this will be, this will be fun to see. Um, not necessarily if I can like get you to like something, but just to talk to you about some of this stuff a little bit more in depth than, uh, we'd be able to with me just like yelling things at you basically. Um, so yeah, uh, real, real tricky, Nick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I promised you, <laughs> I'll promise you money. What? Monetize it. Really? Well, mon- no, I'm joking. Oh, but maybe I don't know. I'll take you to dinner. I don't Really? Okay. Maybe I will take that. Maybe. <laughs> I made the logo. It depends on if you like it, the book or not. No, you owe me, you owe me three, three grand for that logo. <laughs> oh yeah. Brett did make the logo. Thank you. My like crazy specific Marvel Knights era. Oh. <laughs> so I was trying to do the applause one. <laughs> I won't do that, that Scary one. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, yeah, let's get into it then. Okay. So, um, uh, today we are talking about volume one of the league of extraordinary gentlemen by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. Uh, just some background info on that book. Uh, this is written by Moore, drawn by O'Neill, colors by, oh God, Benedict Demogmalu? Demogmalu? I'm not sure how to pronounce that. I'm really sorry. I'm going to butcher a lot of names on this, but, You're doing and right. lettered by Bill Oakley. Got that one. Uh, published. Demogmalu? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the colorist. Huh. Yeah. I was, a, I was like, damn. I even tried to look up the, uh, like an interview after that, but people who talk about him or talk to him pronounce it differently and he doesn't correct them. So I don't know. Benny D. Benny D. That's good. Benny D. I like that. See, but yeah. So this is published under an imprint of Wildstorm Comics, which was uh, Jim Lee's company, uh, after he was, you know, part of the founding of Image Comics, uh, more creators, his own imprint called America's Best Comics, um, 
and the whole idea was that he was going to, you know, control everything and, uh, you know, not have to deal with the big two. Cause he was so disillusioned with Marvel and DC at that point. And ironically, like less than a year after he created this and announced it, uh, DC bought Wildstorm, And, uh, <laughs> that's kind that's of Wildstorm. Wildstorm is, uh, the imprint that Jim Lee owned. Oh, is uh, that what you were just talking about? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry. So, you know, you're <laughs> but like, I'm so. doing it already, <laughs> but, um, yeah. So like, you know, Alan Moore notoriously like hates, you know, Marvel and DC real, uh, you know, curmudgeon of a guy. Um, he, uh, you know, creates this company under Jim Lee's imprint, um, under the assumption that he would be able to control everything and not have to deal with, you know, the, uh, the bullshit from like, you know, Marvel or DC as he saw it. And, uh, ironically DC acquired the company <laughs> and, uh, but they did, they did in fact, uh, kind of, kind of leave him alone, let him do his own thing. Good. Uh, this particular volume of the book was released as six issues starting in March of 1999 and uh, didn't end until September of 2000. There were some significant delays between some issues, but um, uh, it tells the story of a group of famous English literary characters uh, whom all exist together in an alternate Victorian era universe. Uh, the story is about how they come together to try to stop a villainous plot in what I'd say is just a uh, glorious, pulpy and period accurate kind of fashion. <laughs> That's an accurate sure. kind of, I don't know, summary of the, of the book without giving away any spoilers. That sounded good. Uh, but yeah, so um, this book sparked a franchise of sorts, uh, followed up by three more main volumes, a standalone story called The Black Dossier, and a trilogy of graphic novels that follow the exploits of Captain Nemo's daughter. Uh, it was a kind of the primary comic book output for Moore, um, because in 2003, he kind of announced a semi-retirement where he wasn't going to be like constantly working on comics all the time. Um, he was just going to, you know, do what he wanted whenever he wanted, basically. And this was like the one series he kept doing. What's his, what's his classic, like, what are his classic works? I know the name. Uh, Watchmen. Okay. Um, did Bat- he work with like Daredevil? No. Um, uh, he did do Batman. Um, he did the killing joke. Mm. Okay, I know that one. Yeah, um, he also did a Superman story, which we're going to do on this podcast one day, probably with you, called uh, Whatever Happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Okay. And it's uh, it's really great. Um, he a Swamp Thing. He, you know, pretty much made Swamp Thing why everybody likes Swamp Thing. Okay. <laughs> it's because of Alan Moore. Oh, yeah. Um, it's right there. Yeah. On your wall. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he's the, uh, he's the fucking bee's knees. You know, like he, he changed, changed the comic book medium and, uh, you know, is this lauded creator for every single thing he's ever done. You know, I mean, like, uh, I, I mean, you know, obviously your personal mile mileage is going to vary on a, you know, a, a writer's work, but I mean, I think he's probably more deserving of that than anybody in that status. Um, and there's not a lot of people in that status, but, uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's great. He's one of my favorites good just in general um and speaking of when he had his semi-retirement uh from the medium in 2003 real quick i noticed you didn't mention the movie uh that's exactly what i was gonna do that was my perfect segue because that happens to match up with the same year that the film of the same name came out um uh yeah which is a great segue into our section about our first exposures to the series because i know 100 percent that this was your first exposure to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Brett, because it was mine too. Dude, I <laughs> fucking loved this movie. I loved it. This was one of you remember it was one of like five DVDs I owned. That's true. That's for true. Like fifteen it years. Had a slipcase. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah. Um. 
I never really liked this movie. That's crazy. I I, I thought it was it's like, like perfect for a thirteen year old. I thought it was okay when I saw it, but it, that was more because I just I really liked the concept, like just you know like a team of you know classic characters like getting together and and yeah. doing like an adventure type thing. But I just thought the movie was so. It's just, shitty. Yeah, <laughs> the narrative is just confusing. Like I, I we talked about this a little bit right before we started recording, but. I'm not sure what the... I just watched it the other day. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what the plot was. Yeah. I they still just, don't really know. Like it's kept like, ending up places and then they... Like it was over. The characters were like kind of inconsistent too. Yeah. Like Connery's like quipping and shit. <laughs> I like, like that That Tom Sawyer was just like instantly his son. Yeah. Like it... it, it, it like, you want to be my son? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a daddy now. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. It was really yeah. fucking silly. I'm going to teach you how to shoot a gun. Jesus. And then he just walks away and he's like, did you teach your son how to shoot this gun? <laughs> and it's like, why would you just okay. say that? Here are good things about this movie. <laughs> okay. The We're going to get into this now. The casting. You don't think the casting was great? Some of it. Nemo? I like Nemo a lot. He's uh, the only one that I... You don't like re- Mina? Not really. I don't like... I, I think she's okay, but I don't like what they do with the character and like you know maybe it's like the the purist in me who's like why is she a vampire like you know like because because that is the writing that's not the casting yeah yeah okay i don't think that any of the cast is necessarily bad i think the cast is perfect like i think it's all the way i think it's more yeah it's definitely a writing problem i mean yeah it's the writing is fucked yeah (laughs) that that movie had nothing to do with what i read yeah yeah i mean like it's it's fucking mind boggling. Like when you, when you read this, like, cause, cause you know, I've like, like I was just saying, this movie was my first exposure to this, like, you know, franchise of sorts. And like, it definitely like, you know, it, it was a good thing. I couldn't fucking remember the plot or anything because by the time that I decided to read the book, it was so far removed that I was just like, is this what the movie was about? <laughs> and, and I remember like, um, no, cause this was, this was actually the first, uh, when I, when I, you know, first deep dove into comics, like, uh, you know, Alan Moore is obviously going to come up in all these, uh, articles and everything that you read, um, when you're trying to look for like where to start and what to read and stuff. And, uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember looking up Alan Moore and realizing, oh, he wrote that. Okay. And I was like, let me check that out. Cause I bet that that's like fleshed out better in the book. Like, you know, just that, cause all I could really remember was the concept of like, mm-hmm. you know, all these different characters from like, English literature like coming together and like having like this you know Avenger style team up type thing it did it did do that yeah yeah and like and it, it, this was coincidentally the the first Alan Moore book I ever read hmm. like uh, I, I guess it, technically it was the killing joke but that was when I was like a kid and I didn't know like you know I wasn't paying attention to like who wrote it or anything like that I was just like oh a Batman yeah. story you know I, I, mean, I found it a hot topic or it whatever. still counts yeah true true but this is the first one I like intentionally read because it was Alan Moore and yeah. like, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of like, it was so funny too, because like at the time that I read it, I was only like vaguely familiar with like maybe half of these characters, <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, but it just kind of like enraptured me. It was like the, the stories that they came from were like the unspoken lore that it like made you want to go out and like research this stuff or read the books yourself and stuff. The movie, I I, like, I'm the movie got me interested in like classic literature. I know that's silly. (laughs) It is, but but I like Tom Sawyer is like one of my favorite books. I read the fucking minds of King Solomon and like 
I read Dracula. I tried to read Picture of Dorian Gray. Yeah. But that was like over my head. Yeah. But like. Dorian Gray. I, I legit, I went into this shit. Like, I love this movie. Forgot that old Lestat was Dorian Gray in that one. Lestat from the. Queen of the Damned. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that. Didn't that, didn't she just die? The author? Anne Rice. Yeah. She just died last week. Yeah. R.I.P. I mean, she was, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it sucks. I love Anne Rice, but like, you know, I mean, she lived it. She lived a nice, long, full life, you know, and she, she did it. She did a lot of stuff. I'm, yeah, I'm not really familiar with much of her work, but I know it was beloved. It was impactful on me a lot when I, I was, when I was young, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, my, my goth heart <laughs> cried a little last week. Oh, also real quick. The design direction in that movie was pretty good. Uh, yeah. It, it visually looked like the comics at a lot of points. Yeah. I mean, like, um, definitely like a Nemo is a good example of that. Um, I don't like the Nautilus in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a cool idea. I'm glad they didn't like try to CGI a squid back then. Yeah. I think it's more like, um, I don't actually mind the design of it being like this giant, like silver sword looking thing, but knowing the original, like, You'll find out when we get into the story here, but I, you know, minor spoilers for that, but I love the Nautilus design in this book. Yes, and it's cool. And, uh, I actually remembered rereading this cause I haven't read this book in a while. Um, but I knew I wanted to do it and I wasn't too surprised when you picked it from the list that I sent you, but, uh, oh, instant. yeah, <laughs> but, um, I, uh, I realized though, like uh, the thought came, um, uh, you know, in like the first couple pages, um, when you see the Nautilus for the first time, it's like that big, uh, single page splash. And like, uh, I was like, I was like, oh man, I thought about getting that tattooed forever. Like, Seriously? you know, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I was like, uh, like I've, I've it, maybe, Hey, maybe that'll happen one day. I don't know. All right. We'll see. I love I'll get the one from the movie. <laughs> <laughs> we could put them together and they can fight. Yeah. It'd be funny. But yeah, fucking. Yeah, so that's I think that's a pretty good coverage of our uh, background of first exposure to this uh, uh, narrative. At least I did want to ask just be maybe just before we get started, but like, what expectations did you have? Because I mean, I know that you had the, I know that you you liked the movie, and uh, and we had talked about this before because I remember after I read this, trying to tell you like, dude, like the fucking book slays the movie like a million times over it's a completely different thing like it shouldn't does it it. (laughs) like but when do they get to tom sawyer yeah (laughs) um my expectations i don't know i expected a grittier version of the movie with a plot that made sense yeah or like just something less dumb and like (laughs) diluted yeah yeah, I mean, we'll uh, well, we'll we'll see if 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 they succeeded in that. Then, um, uh, if we can get into the uh, the story section here, um, uh, this is where we recap the book in full detail, just to give context for our discussion. Uh, fair warning, full spoilers ahead, even the end. Don't spoilers. don't spoilers. <laughs> spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. But yeah, let's get started here. So, um, when we start the book, um, right off the bat, uh, we get this quote. From Campion Bond, who's an MI5 agent who is uh, also responsible for the titular league's uh, formation. Uh, It says, The British Empire has always encountered difficulty in distinguishing between its heroes and its monsters. And uh, I didn't think about this much at first, um, but this does a great job kind of making you feel unsettled right off the bat. Um, Makes you feel like this ominous story is coming, even though it kind of reveals itself to be a pretty multifaceted uh, tale 
all in all, I think, but it's a, it's a nice like overall quote mood setter, I guess. Um, I suppose it works for both the team who are monsters that are heroes and then the bad guy who's, uh, the, like the head of the good guys. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So like, I don't know, it's, it's just a, it's just a a good all encompassing quote. I think that you can interpret a bunch, um, throughout the, throughout the book, I guess. Uh, Layers, bro. Layers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Moore's good at that. He's very good at that. Um, yeah, so we're showing a uh, rather large man who is uh, who is the previously mentioned Campion Bond um, lighting a cigarette as he's approached by a woman wearing a red scarf who calls out to him by name. Uh, this is Mina Murray, uh, our primary hero in the story, fresh out of her Dracula narrative. And uh, the only difference really being is that uh, she's not married anymore. She's divorced and going by her maiden name. Um, her and Bond have this back and forth that isn't exactly friendly, and it becomes clear that Campion has put Mina in charge of finding certain individuals to create a team. For what purpose, uh, we, we don't really know yet. Um, neither do the characters. Uh, but Bond briefly mentions that there's a place of employment there for Mina under his superior, who, mean, who Mina openly states her belief that is uh, Mycroft Holmes, uh, the brother of Sherlock Holmes, to which Bond plays coy and says his identity is none of her concern. Um, so this is kind of a thread that goes throughout the uh, first six issues, like this whole arc is, uh, you know, Mina thinks that it's Mycroft Holmes, uh, you know, kind of running things in the shadows and MI5 and whatnot and in charge of all the intelligence agency stuff. Boy, does she have another thing coming. Wow. Nice setup. But yeah, um, he gives her a little speech about how these are dark times and she must go find a man or what's left of him in Cairo. Uh, He ends his statement by saying, your chariot approaches and we get this uh, awesome transition panels. Like there's these two panels at the bottom of the, the, the concluding page. And then at the beginning of the next where it's uh, just bubbling and um, it kind of, it works, you know, as this uh, it pushes us forward a month in the narrative, but it doesn't quite show us like, you know, the mode of transportation yet or, 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 you know, the character who runs it, Captain Nemo yet. Um, I just love that little kind of tease thing. It's a, it's a, it's a nice uh, thing that keeps the pace going. I didn't notice it, Nick. You didn't notice it? No. Those bubbles? I like it now that you pointed it out. It's cool. Yeah. It's fine. You gotta get into, get into the narrative, get into the mindset. I skip the ones that are just pictures. Oh my God. There's storytelling there, Brad. I, <laughs> I don't function like this. <laughs> don't worry. You will learn. You'll learn as we go on. But yeah, uh, now in Cairo, we see Mina approach a bedridden man in a dingy house. Uh, he's sick looking and colored in the same shades as his surroundings. Uh, this is Alan Quartermain, famed English adventurer, now turned opium addict. Uh, Mina kind of like gains his attention momentarily, tells him that his country needs him. And he just straight up tells her to go away and kind of seemingly like falls back into like his, you know, kind of opium state of mind. Do you read him in Sean Connery voice? No. Okay, I do. <laughs> I read him as like, I mean, I guess an old English man, which is what Connery tries to do. He's like fully Scottish. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really work, but. Um, I mean, James, he was James Bond, who's like iconically English. True, yeah. But I don't know. Not a great English accent, though. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. Although I don't think he was trying. I mean, yeah. like to be to be fair. He is just, he is he has his own thing. Yeah, yeah. And, and it works. I mean, he's he's got a cool voice. He's he is the most voice. iconic Quartermain. I can't argue with that <laughs> yet. <laughs> I was thinking it would be really, really cool to see them do this movie right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we'll talk about that in the end a little bit because uh, I have some some kind of thoughts on that as well. Um, 
just in general, because there has been talks of a reboot. You know, I mean, I remember reading that like five years ago or something. Listen up, Hollywood. We got ideas. <laughs> CG Connery for Quartermain. <laughs> <laughs> that shitty, like, deep fake they keep doing in Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Remember the Leia one? Yeah, that was yeah. weird. She was still alive then, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, she wasn't. I mean, she didn't look like how she looked back in the day, I guess. So, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. But still, it was super weird. <laughs> it was like a floating head on it. Yeah. <laughs> Made me uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, Quartermain, like, you know, supposedly kind of falls back asleep. And uh, she basically is like, well, good riddance, you know, and starts to leave. Um, but uh, is immediately accosted by two of the men in the facility who uh, give the clear intent to take advantage of, advantage of her and rape her. Um, Alan, like. Right to the rape. Yeah, right, right, immediately. You know, like, we, we got to keep moving. We only got one issue, you know. Um, <laughs> we got but, a full uh, <laughs> a full moonshot, too. Yeah, yeah, we do. This ain't, this ain't that's your That's why I said, ooh, this is getting dark. This is gritty. <laughs> it pulls back and forth. We got butts. It pulls back and forth with the dark, though. I think I think that Moore is really good with that. The, the, uh, the dark is almost played, like, humorously at times. Yeah, especially when we get to, like, hide and stuff like that yeah. um, a, l- a little bit later. Um but Alan, uh, hearing the commotion, uh, stands up and shoots one of the men. And when the other goes to attack Alan um, and gets the upper hand, Mina stabs the attacker in the back with a knife. Um, Alan, like, you know, not really having a choice is like, well, uh, you know, we got to go this way to escape. Um, and they start to leave. But the uh, the stabbed man uh, yells out to his fellow crew and a chase begins in the streets. Um, Mina and Alan become acquainted as they scurry about, like trying to get to the docks. And uh, once they arrive, Alan is amazed at the sight of the Nautilus rising, which is our first big shot. That's the one I was talking about. Uh, just super cool. I love the Nautilus, man. Such a um, good design. Yeah, it looks it's really <laughs> cool. But yeah. Um, an entrance uh, door opens. Uh, are you de- are you familiar ahead. with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? I read it because of this. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Is this an accurate description of? I mean, this is a lot more steampunky. Yeah. Like, you know, just in general. Um, but. I mean, it's not far off. It's very like I'd be impressed if they came up with this design in the 1800s. Uh, yeah, and and I mean, like I don't think that to be honest, like with the way it's described in the book and and from the artwork that you've seen from various covers of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, like it's not that far off. Like the 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 silhouette is very similar, you know. Like and then they just kind of like Kevin O'Neill kind of seems like he, you know, just took to liberty to to make it like cool and mechanical and a bit more like you know like i said steampunk like which is you know very much like nemo's mo in this story mm-hmm. and in this universe like you know it's just like he's sci- a science pirate. yeah science pirate yeah <laughs> it's like which is the name of my new band but, <laughs> dude i want in <laughs> but yeah so uh, speaking of Nemo, yeah, so the uh, an entrance door opens and we get introduced uh, to Nemo for the first time, who promptly tells Mina and Alan to get on the ship. Uh, Mina is like, well, what about this mob? You know, and he says he'll take care of him. And he just immediately, very cartoonishly, but like, you know, I think it's pretty funny. Like he pulls out this huge, giant, like future looking harpoon thing and just like shoots the first two guys that come in, like, like pins them together. They fly over the mob and uh, as the mob of like angry dudes like look at him the door closes and he just like salutes them yeah it is like it is slapstick meets gore yeah which is you know it's interesting yeah and like i i, I don't know I, I, like why wouldn't nemo be your favorite character you know uh true 
I don't know. I mean, he's 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 my favorite. He's by far the coolest. Yeah, <laughs> he, he's he's my favorite. I think just through the. I like Quarterman Connery, but I don't know about this <laughs> Quarterman one. Quarterman Connery. Yeah, he was he was like witty and he's quipping. He's like Joss Whedon quipping like the whole movie. Yeah, they okay. Did you see parallels between that and Captain America the the movies? There were like story beats. Like it starts off in the, the cyanide capsule. Yeah. The guy did. Yeah. I thought of that when I watched it. I was it like, but it starts off in like that temple where he's like, he finds the hidden thing and he's like, you do not know the secrets of whatever, whatever, that's, you know, yeah. the Red Skull scene. It's like then, a, it's a dark night. And like he has a, he has the, you know, future looking tank uh-huh. bust through a wall. Yeah. It is very similar. There, there's yeah. a lot. There is a lot. And tonally, not that they nailed it, but it is like a humorous teenage action movie. The only you thing, know, like the only thing that would have made it more is if, uh, when we first see Steve Rogers, um, he's got a guy impersonating him that someone comes to talk to and they're like, I need to talk to Steve Rogers. Mm, that would have been funny. That would have been good. But they already used that gag in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. True, yeah. You know, if it ain't broke. Can't rip off too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even... I, I, Wrong quarter, man. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the, the cyanide capsule in the... League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie, like the guy when they try to capture him and he he takes the pill, you know, and dies. That instantly reminded me of Captain America: First Avenger, and there were started seeing some similarities after that through the movie. And I I didn't write these down for whatever reason because it's like off topic. It doesn't. It's almost like a whole other podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but we'll cover as much as we can, just because. And it might just be the period piece, kind of. I don't know. Yeah. No, I I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, it's a. It's, it's, it's remarkably similar, I think. Um, yeah. So now aboard the Nautilus, uh, Alan is withdrawing hard from the lack of opium. And, uh, there's another great moment where Alan pleads for his medicine to which Nemo replies that on his ship, his remedies are bitter. And, uh, Alan's like confused and, um, asks who said that and bitter or better. He says bitter. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, uh, Alan is, uh, you know, he, he asked, you said that. And, um, he talks about, he's like, everything is slipping in and out of focus. And, uh, um, he kind of looks towards Nemo and he's like, I, I, I see you only dimly, sir. If you are really not some opium gin sent to torment me, tell me who you are. And the following two panels are just Nemo's face slipping in and out of dark focus. And he only replies, no one. So what did he mean? Cause what I took that as that his remedies were better was that he had some kind of magical cure. But I, I think better. That means he's just gonna lock him in a room for a week. Yeah, and let him and let him, you know, okay. wean himself off. Basically, okay, that I makes think. more sense. Because um, I was gonna say that's kind of like, uh, I don't know what do you call it, like a MacGuffin or whatever. It, it's just like a magic. Yeah, like, he he has. This I have stuff. a science cure that'll make you. Yeah, he's like he's like, oh, you're fine now, you know, like, yeah. and it is. Uh, I I think um, they do zip past the addiction thing really fast. A little bit. I mean, he does. Uh, he struggles with it a little, but we are jumping over like the story takes place over a couple of months. So it's like, you know, it's uh it's it's skipping around a bit. But um we see him struggle with it a little and it does come back in volume two. Um, you know, one thing uh, I will say real quick, uh uh it kind of fits more into the overall, but I will say um reading this volume one by itself, I kind of forgot how much of the information from volume two has just, you know, seeped into my knowledge, like that I thought was earlier in the series. Like there's a lot of character stuff that um, uh, I'll go into more specifically later that like doesn't happen in this volume that I was like, I was like, Oh, 
that was later. That was the next one or whatever. Like, yeah, it's like, so maybe one of these days, if you, it, it will, we'll do volume two, <laughs> but as, as like a part two of this, but, um, you know, yeah. So, uh, following up, we see Alan waking up in an isolated room and, uh, he's peering out to where, uh, Mina and Nemo are sitting and he looks confused, but he kind of looks more like consciously aware, you know, like he's, he's coming around, he's starting to realize what, what's going on. Um, Nemo and Mina talk about uh, how he looks and how he should hopefully be okay by the time they reach their next destination, which is Paris. Uh, they are on their way to meet up with a contact Mina knows named Dupin. Um, it's also here that uh, they talk a bit of uh, Mina's qualifications to be in such a group, and uh, she basically tells Nemo that it's like none of his business and not to press it. Good uh, question, though. Um, what like what are they? Well, I mean, like. Uh, my assumption is that what we're supposed to assume about this is if you've read Dracula, she is the one who like puts the plan together and gets all the people together. So she's kind of a coordinator. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that that's like the implication is that like, you know, she can reel in all these like crazy fucking people <laughs> and like get them to work together, you know, in sure. a, in a, in a way that makes sense. Okay. I mean, her I'll, being the only one that they know of that's like dealt with like a crazy supernatural thing and like lived to tell the tale, basically. And also, too, though, I mean, it could be other stuff because, I mean, this version of Mina is different than the one in the Stoker novel because, I mean, you know, she's divorced for one. Like, we don't know what happened to Jonathan mm -hmm. um, or, you know, how that all played out. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, it's a uh, it's it, it could be a, a number of things, I guess. <laughs> I get like from a writer's perspective, like it's a cool character that's done cool stuff and then, you know, just lump those together and make them superheroes. But it's like a lot of these characters aren't like superheroes or. Yeah. But I think that's like also that. like really like on purpose that they're not superheroes, you know? Yeah. Like um, it's supposed to just be like this way, like, like, okay, like if these characters were alive, like which one of them which, which ones of them would be effective on a team like this, you know, like mm -hmm. whether or not they have like a, a crazy inhuman ability or not. Um, and yeah, and more clearly has, uh, an affinity for Mina because I mean, she's the only consistent character through the entire series. Hmm. Like really, you know, I mean, she is but, like the, how do you call it? The, the point of view character, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I if, if the league of extraordinary gentlemen has a main character, it would be Mina hmm. like for sure. Which might just be more being ironic because he's like, it's going to be oh, a woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Seems like something he might do. You know, I don't know. All the like old timey woman digs, they're they're funny, but also like heavy handed. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I don't feel like he's far off from Ain't like a, the nothing crazier than an angry woman or a Chinaman. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know. I do feel like the di it, the dialogue in particular, like from the characters, because I mean, there's not a lot of uh, I don't really think there's any, you know, just omniscient narrator ever. It's always from if there is narration, it's from the perspective of like Mina usually. And uh, they like, you know, so we get these stories solely from the dialogue of the characters. And I feel like it's pretty authentic to like the character stories and the time period and whatnot. I mean, like, you know, it. it says a lot without saying too much, you know, most of the time. Yeah. They've, for the most part, the main characters are of their time without being like fucking like cartoons. <laughs> yeah. Or like come off as like socially evil today. Like yeah. they probably should or, or 
a lot of the authors of these characters were probably like total fucking racists and horrible people. Oh yeah. But they're updated to a point where they still kind of talk like that, but it's not, you know, like you kind of, it's kind of with a grain of salt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's one of those things too, where it's like, you know, I've heard people argue like, well, if it's not that, if it's not going to be addressed, why would more put it in? And it's like, I really think it's just because of the authenticity. I mean, like I, I think that it's one of those things where, you know, when he puts them in those situations, it's like, how would they feel? You know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. like when it comes to Brim, like, you know, that's just the, the realism of it, unfortunately. But, you know, I mean, I, I don't know, you know, like I said, mileage is going to vary on that for everybody who reads this, like, especially today, you know, but like, you know, I appreciate the authenticity, if anything, just because it makes it feel, you know, authentic. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, there are different times and he includes it in kind of a winking way, which is one way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Someone today would probably do it differently. Yeah, definitely. I, I would think, you know, but yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, we also get a little bit of insight, uh, about how Quartermain was, you know, the hero of the history books while Nemo was like painted as the nightmare with them being on separate ends of the uh, war. Um, but yeah, so they, they arrive in France where Amina and Alan wait to meet up with the contact Dupin. Uh, the two have kind of a cute, cutesy back and forth in which they politely kind of insult each other on their perceived shortcomings. Uh, which, God, will they or won't they? Yeah, which I think is pretty. Del- I love the will they, won't they for fucking Quartermain and Mina. That's that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's OK. It's, it's just fun. so like so obvious and like from the very first second. Yeah. Like, OK, I see. I think it's fun. It's Ross and Rachel all over again. Yeah. It's probably what Moore was going for. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when Dupin arrives, uh, he tells them that Bond has expressed interest in an old case that has recently been reopened under Dupin's investigation. Uh, he tells of some like brutal murders that have been taking place in the same spot as a previous case near the room morgue murders in the room morgue. Wow. Wow. And, uh, he, t- <laughs> he tells that recently the murder of several prostitutes has been taking place in this area. Uh, all killed by what appears to be a being with uh, unhuman strength. Uh, Mina decides to dress up and pose as a prostitute to lure the killer out that night and Alan and Dupin are kind of supposed to keep watch uh, from from afar, you know, down the street and follow Mina if she's absconded with. But uh, when Alan uh, decides to go to a corner shop for a drink, which uh, looks a lot like alcohol, but is uh, revealed not long after to be uh, uh, laudanum, which uh, do you know what that is? It's like opium, basically. Yeah, it's like it's like a, a sedative mixture with opium that they used to sell. Um, and uh, when he returns, Mina's gone. Frantically, he runs to find Dupin, who didn't see where she went either. They ask a nearby prostitute if she saw anything, and she says that uh, she was seen walking with a skinny man named Henry, who's a frequenter and who lives down the street. Uh, The two go to the apartment complex where they witness something thrown through a high window, causing them to rush up into the building. They work their way up. Alan finds Mina, her clothes tattered with like minor wounds all over. She's knocked on the ground. Uh, She says that um, she thought she could handle him, but then something happened. And Alan approaches, you know, the the dark room that has the door like wide open and he's got his pistol drawn and he calls out to Henry uh, and he's like, we have you now or whatever. Uh, <laughs> when he gets into the threshold, he's knocked out by a huge monstrous creature that barely resembles a man who says uh, Henry isn't home. I'm Edward. And this is Mr. Hyde. 
another member of our team. What a twist already. Yeah. Who what, do you th- what do you think about his design? Uh, I don't like it. You don't? No. I like, <laughs> like, you think it, like you think it's bad or you think it's like just, just unsettling? Uh, I think it's not. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm not. I like the movie version. Yeah. Uh, no, no joke. Like more of a grotesque man with like the mutton chops and shit. That's, I don't know. I, I don't know. Like the cheeks on this one are all like torn open and muscly and yeah he looks really more like a a monster ape i think monster yeah like a creature you would find as opposed to like it's okay i mean i don't know and it kind of looks different from page to page like i mean yeah features shift oddly he fluctuates dependent on like the uh kind of perspective of the panel and whatnot and all that jazz yeah But, but yeah I don't know. I've I've never been uh it's not my favorite design. I've never been like super opposed to it, but I've never been like super into it either, you know. But uh, but I do uh I do enjoy reading Hyde as a character. I just I just so whenever he does pop up, I I'm like, "Oh, cool." You know. Yeah. But um so the trio of uh Mina, Dupin, and Alan, they all uh battle it out with Mr. Hyde, who just kind of like thrashes them and uses crass language the entire time, which really hits you back to reality after an entire issue of just like, you know, English roundabout politeness that everybody talks in. Like even when it's like tense, it's still very proper. And then Hyde comes in and he's just like, you birch or whatever. You You little shit. Yeah. (laughs) And you're like, you're like, Oh, okay. Uh, you know, (laughs) weird. Um, Dupin, uh, does manage to, uh, blow one of Hyde's ears off, um, which angers him more. Uh, after that, Alan comes and, uh, shoves the bottle of, um, uh, laudanum down his throat, causing him to believe he is poisoned. And, uh, he falls out the apartment window, uh, near the room morgue. Um, they wheel him back to the Nautilus and, uh, say their goodbyes to Dupin. Uh, Dr. Jekyll wakes up and is in his normal human self form, uh, gets to know the crew and complains about his missing ear. And on the journey home, Mina remarks in a letter to Bond that they were not properly informed and that MI5 seems to know more than they are really letting on. Uh, Because, I mean, basically within the last month, she's been, you know, almost killed twice. And they're just like, oh, go find this doctor or whatever, you know, (laughs) like and and aren't really letting on what's what's really going on. Granted, I think it's kind of up in the air whether or not they, they really know like exactly what was going on with Hyde or you know, in terms of with Alan being in like a drug den of like, you know, crazy, like assassin people and stuff like, so who knows? But when they arrive back at London, uh, Campion Bond makes arrangements to take Dr. Jekyll for some tests and explains to Mina the next person they are to acquire. Uh, he tells her of a miraculous event in which three schoolgirls at an Edmonton school have all become pregnant. Uh, he talks of a man named Holly Griffin, who was supposedly killed last year, and Bond believes that the two are connected. Uh, when Mina relays the information to Nemo and Alan, both who seem more and more skeptical of Bond's intentions, uh, Nemo has this uh, great scene, like he ends the scene basically uh, after Mina tells him that Bond is running tests on Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, geez. Uh, he says, uh, I fear he collects monsters, which is one of my favorite lines of the book. I think that that's just really cool. Yeah, I do. And then right behind him is the, like his altar. Yeah. The God, God of death and stuff. Yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah it's cool. I uh, think our host worships death. Oh God. Or <laughs> in the movie when she's like, can we trust him? It's like, dude, you're a vampire. Like, what <laughs> <do> you <do? laughs> like she has like no reason to like. Tom Sawyer's there. Yeah. <laughs> I rightly think we can, ma'am. 
I love how I was barely watching. I was like, what the fuck is this? I love how Tom Sawyer, Dorian Gray, and then Hyde all just love the woman. The one woman who's there. <laughs> well, of course. Uh, movies in 2003. It was a transitional period. <laughs> yeah, movies weren't good yet, really. It wasn't the 90s, the great 90s classics. And it wasn't like when movies got actually good in the late 2000s. <laughs> yeah, it was true. like stuck in the middle. Very stuck in the middle, that's for sure. So, um, you know, nonetheless, uh, even after, you know, their skepticism, uh, the three go to Miss Coots's Correctional Academy for Wayward Gentlewomen uh, the following day to investigate what's going on. Uh, they do this by having Nemo pose as uh, their manservant uh, to Mina and Alan, who play a married couple visiting the school as a consideration for their daughter. Miss um, Coots kind of shows them around and uh, she's like super overzealous and confident about their ability to like whip girls into shape and be prim and proper. There's a lot of like weird pleasure pain kink stuff insinuated here and uh i don't know i think more just thinks it's funny it's very strange yeah like it's, it's like um it's very like fetishized yeah and it's really like the only like moment in this volume that's like that and all their all their faces when they're getting like spanked and raped are like dead-eyed like like just it's very strange yeah it's very weird like it's just like I, I, like i said i i think that more just kind of thinks it's funny yeah <laughs> like as it comes off it's just like what the fuck you know like it's i don't know just just something that there, very there, much yeah there's layers to this that i'm not gonna peel back yeah i mean like i i i don't feel qualified to do that to be <laughs> honest <laughs> but, but but yeah so you know uh miss cooch shows them uh to their guest rooms where they can stay for the night and we have this great scene where uh mina you know in classic this is very friends moment where she kicks them out of the uh the bigger room and makes the two boys stay in the single bedroom. Warmer. Yeah. <laughs> that I read in Connery's voice. That I read in Connery's <laughs> yeah. voice. I could I could always read that in his voice. That was um yeah, that was a a sitcom quip moment. That yeah. Was, um It's pretty I I like it though just cuz it's it, I wasn't the, you know, every time I read it, I'm not expecting the uh the outright joke, the jokes that happen in this book. Like, I, I always remember it as like this. It's like a Tim Allen joke. Yeah, <laughs> it very much is. But I like it. I think it's funny. It's like yeah, it's it's, 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 uh, like, it's like, where are we going with this story here? And I think it's well paced in the panels, at least, too. Like, just like it just cuts to them just being in the room together. And Quartermain's just like women <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. It's I'm, funny. I'm somewhere in the middle on this one. Yeah. So uh, during the night hours, uh, they hear a lot of commotion and a moaning voice cuts through. Uh, one of the schoolgirls screams that it's happening again and that it's happening to a girl named Polly. Uh, our trio runs out uh, down the hall towards the commotion and they see the girl floating in the air and a bodiless voice is moaning loudly. Uh, Mina says she's being attacked and it must be some supernatural creature. So they kind of approach the area. And as Mina grabs the girl, uh, Alan feels around and says he <laughs> he's like, it feels like naked skin. And uh, the supposed spirit begins to kind of fight them, uh, getting the upper hand on both Nemo and Alan because they can't see him. So uh, it's only when Mia returns with a, a paint can, she throws it on the figure and uh, it's revealed to be the Invisible Man, who's, uh, you know, a rapist. Yay. Uh, yeah. You know, a celebrated rapist. Yeah. Celebrated rapist. Yeah. You know, and uh, he's, this he's, is... he's a terrible character. <laughs> but... Yeah, it's pretty rough. This is also around the time when, you know, when I was talking about how like narratives get rushed in this format. Yeah. It's like 
they're there for 10 minutes and then they catch the invisible man. Yeah. Like, okay. To me, I like, wish that they would, I wish that they would like real, like an issue or two per, per character. character or something. So yeah. it's like, I don't, I'm not really like feeling them becoming a team and like acting like real people and like they, I don't know. It's like, it's all too easy and coincidental. That's fair enough. Um, but I honestly think that, uh, with more, I feel like that's super deliberate in this story only because like not only to get, you know, the premise and, and everything going quicker, but also just the fact that I think he's, he's very much emulating like, you know, the, the Pope comics like that he, that he loves, you know? And it's just like, it's just like, get the story going, get it, get him get him here. You know, you have some character moments like thrown in, but like, just, just get it going, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. cause, cause he's, cause not all of his stories are, I, are like that. I also know? get like, you're given a chance to, to make this new thing. And it's like, you can't just spend the whole time setting it up. You have to like tell the actual story yeah, or, or people aren't going to buy it. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, so I understand. Yeah. Cause this was too an experiment. This was the first book that he released under this imprint. So it was a lot of it, you know, like was writing on it, just being successful for him to be able to continue doing that. Like with this particular imprint that he was just solely in charge of, you know? Yeah. So like I, it, it's 10 times as much as in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, Dude, that's that's the movie, true. They were just all there. And there's more characters. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's just like it's, it, it's it's astounding. Yeah. Like when I when I was watching it today, I was just like, I was like, dear, like, fuck, dude, like they're going through this shit so much. Like, is I don't know, too much, too much. Yeah. So anyway, with the Invisible Man, uh, they knock him out, proceed to take him back to headquarters the following day. Uh, Bond gives them some background info on both the Invisible Man and Dr. Jekyll. Invisible Man is Holly Griffin. Uh, he turned himself invisible after turning an albino man invisible and subsequently letting a mob kill the albino man for crimes that he himself committed. Uh, Hyde is being interviewed. Have you read your, you like HG Wells, right? I do. Did you read invisible man? Uh huh. Is yeah. that the, is that in the, that story? Uh, what do you, you mean with the albino man and whatnot? Yeah, that I've, story that I've read two different invisible man stories, HG Wells. And there was another one, but, um, I think all I really remember is like both versions. He's, kind of an asshole you know like yeah. uh, i mean like he's bit, he's definitely more of a protagonist than he is in this story but he's taken to the extreme like just like terrible guy basically in this one yeah but um you know in both versions i remember him being a pretty big asshole i don't necessarily remember him like letting someone take the fall for him though mm -hmm. like you know in in that way um and then like pretending he was dead or whatever i guess i know because he does he does you know kind of fake his death or people just assume he's dead but yeah, I don't know. It's been so long since I've read that, though. I'm not really sure. Probably should have reread that for this. That's too much work. Yeah, way too much. <laughs> but, it's uh, not canon, anyways. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Not canon. Not in Moore's head. In Moore's head, he's just a rapist <laughs> or whatever. Mm. <laughs> Terrible guy. <laughs> but uh, so, uh, yeah, so Hyde is being interviewed as Hyde and uh, wants seemingly nothing to do with the situation, but they offer him a pardon for his service. Uh, which is remarkably similar to the movie. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'll do anything for the queen. Yeah. <laughs> but it, um, it is also told that uh, Jekyll um, no longer needs a potion to change. So they skip past that whole thing, you know, with it, with the thing and, and just says that like simple stress. He's the Hulk. Stress will do it mm. basically. Um, 
Nemo gets frustrated and demands to be told, uh, you know, what the purpose of this team is and, you know, why it's all of them in particular. And Bond finally lets it out that some very important material called Cavarite has been stolen from the government. Uh, it's an anti-gravity material that was to be used on a supposed lunar expedition. It's to- MacGuffinese. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And uh, they say it was going to be used as this lunar expedition to mark the dawn of the 20th century. Um, and uh, this is significant because uh, in the hands of enemies, they talk about how it can be used to power flying war machines. They're very specific about it, too. They instantly jump to flying war machines like that. That's just any all anybody thinks that someone would use it for. Um, and ironically, they're right. So, you know, uh, I guess good on them. But any new science is always turned into a weapon right away. That's true. Except for Captain Nemo's. Granted, I guess a lot of his stuff is weapons. So he's also unexplained. Like what is where did he get all that stuff? Pirate. Uh huh. Science. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. <laughs> also, I like in this scene, there's a portrait behind them that Mina looks at. That's a bunch of like 1700s yeah. era literature characters. The, the different leagues. Yeah. 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 Which I don't know if that's a thing in this universe or if it's just a tease. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, they don't, I don't really think they ever like go full blown into it. And they're like, they're like, this is the one from, you know, this era or whatever. Like, it's yeah, just a, it's, it's, a, it's just a referential to say that like, this has been done before. Yeah. Like, you know, extraordinary people being brought together to, you know, help the government. They did that in like Venture Brothers. Did you ever watch that? I've only watched a little bit of it, honestly. They kept doing that in Venture Brothers where it's like, there was a team before this team and then it like goes back like so far and then it gets confusing and convoluted and it's like, <laughs> I don't care about this anymore. <laughs> I just wanted the silly jokes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I need to get further in that series. It's good. I like the early stuff better. Yeah. Which is a funny thing to say. Yeah. You know. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Bond says that it has come to their knowledge that a warlord known as the Doctor has the Cavarite. Um, he has established himself as the crime king of London's East End and is regarded as a, people keep referring him to as Satan himself. He's got this mystique about him. Uh, Bond ends the conversation by telling uh, him the group's job is to track him down uh, to his lair in Limehouse. And bum ba da bum now the league is formed officially, you know? Wow, what a moment. What a big moment. I'm along for the ride. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had to be. I had to be. You had to be. Can't stop. Otherwise, you wouldn't be my friend. That's true, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so the league now fully formed uh, discuss um, you know, Where's Tom Sawyer? <laughs> they discuss what they want to do together for the first time. Um, all coming to the conclusion that even if they don't trust Bond or his superior's intent, uh, they can't leave the Cavarite in destructive hands, so they decide to do the mission. Uh, they go to East London, splitting up to get information. Mina and Griffin visit a tea shop owned by a man named Kwong Lee, uh, who is known to be knowledgeable of events and uh, kind of the inner workings of things like in the area. Um, he gives them like some really cryptic clues, uh, that lead them to where they need to go, which is the, uh, uh, it's pretty like fortune cookie. Yeah. Yeah. But, but Mina's like, you know, like, Oh, it's, he means this, you know, like he can't say it for real cause he'll get in trouble or whatever. So, um, you know, but they end up at the bridge. He's, he's telling them to go to the bridge and <laughs> that's a tunnel under the bridge. But, um, that was, that's stupid. <laughs> He just said a bunch of nothing. <laughs> I love, I love how, I, I love how adamant though Holly Griffin is, the, the Invisible Man of just like, just like, what a waste of time, you know. 
<laughs> like he's just it's the most stereotypical conversation for this like thing to happen basically it's kind of funny but like uh jekyll and allen go about finding the uh, seedy underground criminal organization by pretending to search for opium like they're just trying to buy and uh it leads them to a club in which they encounter a high-ranking man named shin yan uh they ask for a man who they know deals opium uh just to kind of seem legit like they're you know actual customers but the man is in the uh turns out he's in the back room of the club being tortured by the doctor himself who uh makes eye contact um as he's etching words into the man with uh, acid which i thought was kind of neat um that he just kind of like catches his eye and then like you know we see the warlord doctor there for a bit and he's just like uh he's got his eye is like not like a normal eye. It's like a cat eye almost or something like that. It's weird. Snake oh, eye spooky. or something. Yeah. But I love that just because, uh, how, you know, Alan is just so freaked out. It just frightens him to his core. I really like his reaction and, uh, kind of sells the threat. Um, well, it wasn't, ever, okay. I, I guess this is getting into like getting ahead of myself, but is that ever explained? What do you mean? The weird eyes that this guy has? Uh, n- no, not necessarily. No. I mean, oh. like, he's just like, you know, just like an evil guy i mean he's fu manchu so like you know it's a he's just you know crazy warlord guy sure with snake eyes yeah scary but yeah there's uh also a great set of panels where uh you know they're trying to leave and shin yen is threatening alan for coming around and uh we see it from like the perspective of like jekyll is like listening and uh, he like freaks out and he starts to like, you know, kind of his face <laughs> contorts for a sec and he like almost changes, but he keeps it under control. You know, I don't know. I like that kind of stuff. It's fun. It's done well. Yeah. I mean, it's done well. It's just such funny faces. Yeah. <laughs> well, how would you look if you were transforming? You know? I guess like that. Yeah. I, I, I would bet you a thousand dollars that you would look exactly like that. You're on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Alan and Jekyll leave and reconvene at the Nautilus with the rest of the league. Uh, they talk about their findings, and Mina has put together that they uh, must be building whatever weapon they plan to use underground in the tunnels accessible by the bridge. Uh, it's kind of a fun conversation because, um, you know, Mina, like, you know, kind of proposes, like, you know, this is what's happening, and they're all like, no, no, <laughs> you know, whatever. Like, they kind of, they're like, no, it wouldn't be that. And then she kind of just, literally walks them through like her logic and and they all like you know there there's like this moment of realization like oh yeah she's probably fucking right like um you know further cementing that you know she should she should definitely be on the team and she and she's she's good at doing this stuff but you know so they initiate a plan which involves mina and alan posing as a couple looking for shelter in the poorhouse uh that way they can gain access to the tunnel um like the entrance of it without notice uh Griffin accompanies them as backup, obviously, like, covertly. Uh, they sneak past the guards and end up finding this, uh, the finding a massive warship, <laughs> you know, which um, I, I don't know. It's pretty kooky, but, like, I kind of love the design of it. You remember that me. one? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's cool. It's cool. It's I, kind of like, you know, Chinese dragon theme. Yeah, I, I don't dislike I it. I like it. <laughs> I think it's pretty cool. I love that page reveal, too, because that's like the end of that in particular issue. Mm-hmm. And uh, we cut back to Nemo and the Nautilus, and uh, we meet Ishmael, who uh, later on in the series and in the uh, the Nemo trilogy books, um, he's one of my favorite characters, but he only gets like the one moment <laughs> in this volume. Um, Interesting. But yeah, so... Uh, it's as much as he got in the movie, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, de- they got that accurate. 
yeah, they did. They were like, they were like one page, 10 seconds. Okay. Like, you know, that that's a one-to-one. That, those are the things they decided to do one-to-one. <laughs> uh, they tried, they tried to change it. And someone said, hang on, we got to do Ishmael, right? There was some producer on that movie that was like, where's Ishmael? <laughs> they're like, I don't know, have him, have him open a car door or something. He's got to say the thing. Yeah. <laughs> so Nemo asks him and uh, his other mate, uh, Broad Arrow Jack, about their observations of the team and overall situation. Like they've been, you know, watching them and gaining, you know, intel of what they think because Nemo trusts their opinion. And uh, they think Alan and Mina are good. They don't like Hyde or Griffin, but aren't worried about them being untrustworthy. Uh, their concern is Bond. And Nemo gets a great line where he says, Bond believes we are his pawns. He thinks no one observes his game, but I am no one. I observe everything. And to play with Nemo is to play games with destruction. And again, he's just like the coolest character, you know? Pretty cool. I don't know. And Ishmael's first appearance can be worth a lot one day. That's how I would post it if I I was selling the book online. I'd put Ishmael's first appearance. (laughs) (laughs) Like issue three, Ishmael's first appearance. And the doctor. It's a key. No, that was two. It's a key. Is that... Is non- that a thing you say? Yeah, key issue. Okay. Yeah. I trade Wade. Key issue. Non non cameo. Non cameo. First full appearance. You gotta say first full appearance. Are you sure this is a full appearance, not a cameo? No, yeah, because he talks and he introduces himself. Is that the line? Yeah. What's a cameo? Cameo is like if they're just like in the background. Or you like see their silhouette or something at the end. I don't think that's true. Cameo appearance. Alright, whatever. Whatever, dude. You notice the money difference. <laughs> whatever, you're the boss. One day you'll know. I hope to never. <laughs> so <laughs> back at the hidden lair, Mina and Alan are working their way through and uh, the doctor turns out to be visiting the lair, forcing them to take cover and hide as they hide. A guard comes upon them, uh, but has his throat cut by Griffin um, in kind of a little cool scene where you just see the floating knife, you know, go across his throat and uh, they decide to clothe Alan in the guard's uniform so he can infiltrate and grab the Cavorite with less suspicion. But Mina tells Griffin to go get Jekyll so that they can create a distraction, um, you know, in another part, basically, uh, so that it would be easier for them. And uh, we get this a couple times. I think um, they do it in issue five again, or maybe it's six. Can't remember exactly. But um, uh, whenever Griffin goes to go do something, we get no no dialogue, like just the nine panel grid of this invisible guy moving through. And you just see the stuff moving around him. Uh, again, I skipped that. <laughs> I have, I, I just automatically go to the next words. Yeah. It takes a while to start appreciating just like the, the artful storytelling stuff sometimes, you know? Yeah. I, and I do like, I do to an extent, but I just like, I miss it. Yeah. I, you got it unconsciously. I think to read like, you know, more, um, I don't know with stuff that I really like, you know, this being you know, no secret, you know, it's not spoilers for the ending discussion, but I really, I really love this book. Um, I have for a long time and with stuff that I love and have reread, like I've read this, I think in my mind, I just learned to read it more cinematically and I just, you know, get to pay attention to those moments that, uh, you know, didn't stick out as much because I'm definitely a dialogue first reader. Um, whenever I read an issue or a, you know, series or anything for the first time, I'm the same way. Like I just jump from, you know, kind of skip past the stuff not skip necessarily but it's just like more of a skim and like when i go back to reread it's like those are the things i pay attention to more because i don't remember them as well so like it just becomes this full picture for me it's like a more cinematic experience i guess how often do you do you reread everything like do you read everything twice stuff that i like a lot yeah 
I mean, like, uh, there's plenty of stuff that I, you know, have or, or, or sold, you know, after I read it the one time and I was like, hey, I got the gist, but it didn't leave like that much of an impression, you know, or whatever. See, I remember as a kid, you'd have like four comic books and you just read those over and over and over. And that was cool. Yeah. But like, I don't know. Now I, I would just get a trade, read it once and put it away forever. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the story. You know, I mean, like I said, I don't read everything twice, but this one I've, I've read quite a few times over the years. Yeah. Like, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I like whenever they do that nine panel grid style thing with, uh, with Jekyll. Um, that's, that's just cool. And then the nine panel grid thing is, you know, an Alan Moore signature. He loves doing that with, uh, you know, the killing joke and with Watchmen obviously is like nine panel grid almost the whole time and stuff. Huh? That seems like the default. Like that's the easiest way to do it. Yeah. Is it like the traditional, you know, you would think, but like more just, uh, he, he just has a way of structuring it. Like just, he, he reinvented it, you know? Interesting. Yeah. It's awesome. But, uh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, Jack, uh, Griffin goes to find Jekyll, um, who's just been posted up outside the entire time. And their plan is pretty funny. <laughs> he goes into the shelter and at like the reception desk, you know, is just like, immediately demands to see the manager but he's like really kind of meek about it and uh you know griffin starts like giving him shit because he's just like oh come on like you know you could do better than that or whatever and they start kind of arguing and jack jekyll starts to argue with them you know um it's just like it's just like let me do it my own way or whatever because he's got to transform and uh you know they they just think he's talking to nothing you know (laughs) like just just like a crazy guy so the guards start to get involved and uh they just see a crazy guy and uh, when they crowd him and uh, start to try to remove him, the transformation is triggered and Mr. Hyde comes out and he brutally just like tears through them, ripping and biting off body parts and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's an instant of that, you know, random, super gory moments that you get in this book. Yeah. That there's, just there's good motion in that scene where he turns and he just like instantly tears three of them apart. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love too that like, after he uh, finishes them off, um, Griffin and Hyde are now, you know, officially introduced to each other because Hyde, you know, is a, a different person. And like uh, Griffin says that uh, they have to get moving because, you know, a fire started in their commotion. And uh, in an interesting development um, that I didn't remember wasn't elaborated on uh, until volume two. But um, we see that from Hyde's uh, perspective, he can actually see Griffin. Or at least like an infrared version of him. Yeah, I wondered if that has a payoff somewhere. It does. In the in the next volume, it does. Um, but yeah, like he keeps it a secret. And and even though he sees him, he's like, you'll have to be more specific, Griffin. Like, I can't, you know, I can't see you or whatever. And, he, and he's all like, oh, sometimes I forget or whatever, you know. So, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's a. Yeah, I kind of forgot that this had such a focus on it in the first volume. Because I remember it comes into play heavily in the second but I forgot that they, they they take this big moment just to like focus in on that and make sure that like you know that he can see him, which yeah. I which I thought was an interesting decision. Uh, but yeah, I don't want to spoil any of the outcome or payoff because like I said, we might do volume two one day on this. So you know, uh, but yeah, Hyde and Griffin decide to go ahead and uh, keep distracting by making a ruckus, and um, we cut back to Mina and Alan uh, with the distraction in place. Alan does slip through. Um, goes into the ship, grabs the Cavarite device and bolts. Um, I really like that big moment of seeing the inner workings of the warship. And, you know, this first time we see the Cavarite device, um, it's like, it's very like Indiana Jones style, like artifact on top of like 
you know, this thing that he has to grab or whatever, like, and it's, you know, he has this reaction where he's just like, wow, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Like, it's just kind of in awe of it. It's got like this alien green kind of vibe. It's the last room of a dungeon in a video game. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much that. And so, you know, Mina and Alan make a run for it. And, uh, some of the guards catch on and start to chase them. Uh, they end up where Griffin and Hyde are surrounded. Um, uh, well, not really surrounded yet. They, they just have a pile of bodies around them, but there are more, more and more guards coming. Uh, they kind of decipher that there's too many and, uh, they lock themselves within a chamber that, uh, I think we saw it actually earlier where they mentioned it, where it's like this glass dome because, you know, they're beneath the water. So it's like an aquarium exhibit style thing. Yeah. They walked past it. Yeah. And, uh, so they're still under the water. Uh, they use Alan's elephant gun to blow it up and they activate the Caverite device to propel them up so that they don't drown. Like, and, uh, you know, they, they fall, you know, cause they, cause they end up going in the air and then, uh, finally they end up, you know, they're able to turn it off and, uh, they all fall into the sea. It's a silly fucking escape concept. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty funny. <laughs> like they, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but they'd be crushed by the water. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's okay. But still it is like, uh, Oh, now we're out. Yeah. Well, they're like, I, it, yeah, basically they, that's the way their way of effectively completing the mission and destroying yeah. the underground layer of the doctor. It is like, Oh, there's two pages left. How do we end it? Yeah. So <laughs> I will say there's something, and it's just that it's that storytelling comic book thing that I'm, I've been talking about. Yeah. I mean like something about though, like old school characters accomplishing an astonishing like version of flight like, you know, like just like, you know, in this kind of time period where that wasn't common. And that's like, a, I feel like that's a trope in, in these kind of stories themselves is like characters experiencing like flying for the first time. And to me, it's just like one of the most pulpy things imaginable. I guess. But I like no one's flown like this. This is well, like, yeah, not like that in particular. Yeah. But it's more I, I effective of like a jetpack or something like it's. Like, yeah. But uh, yeah, so they land in the water, um, you know, all like unconscious and worn out and uh the nautilus emerges and uh the mechanical tentacles pick them all up and bring them to safety uh i love that little sequence where the tentacles pick them up <laughs> and it just like submerges again yeah that is cool i uh, didn't know that the tentacles could move yeah yeah and like so uh we cut to inside of the nautilus not long after and the group is recovering and campion bond is there to retrieve the cavorite uh he gladly takes it thanks to the league and just kind of you know heads off um it's then shown to us that Griffin is following them in secret as per Nemo's instructions, and uh, Bond goes to meet his superior, who turns out to not be Mycroft Holmes, but his brother Sherlock's sworn enemy, James Moriarty. Oh, fuck. And if you don't know like anything about Sherlock Holmes, you're just like, who the fuck's that? Did you like the twist in the movie? It was I, at the very end, and they said, you're not the Phantom, you're... And he took the mask off. Moriarty. God damn it. And he went, Moriarty died that day on the falls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like what are you what, like, is, what are you talking why about? would you why would you keep that at that point like right. you know you you made this whole different thing and it's like put one line in that yeah like I, i'm like i'm like dude like come on yeah the the twist is that it's a different guy it's so that it's so that when they're at the press junkets or, or after the movie's released and people are giving them shit they can be like we stuck to the story <laughs> a little. <laughs> you're like no you didn't he didn't act like Moriarty at all. Um, he was the no. Phantom. No. Yeah, I. But I'd argue that this this guy doesn't act like Moriarty very much too. Uh, I mean, like he he gets beaten pretty easily. I mean, yeah. Like you know, 
They only had two issues like, to wrap up or whatever. <laughs> yeah, see? That's what I'm saying. It's short and pulpy, sweet and to the point. All right. I kind of like that. Sometimes you want something that like just gets shit done, you know? I guess. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I remember, though, like when I first read this, um, not remembering that little twist in the movie because I just completely forgotten that. And like uh, I remember catching on that since, you know, Campion Bond, who is, you know, supposed to, he's an original character, um, you know, supposed to be like the ancestor of James Bond, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I remember catching or be feeling proud of myself because he referred to him as Mr. M like throughout the whole book. And I was just like, I was like, Oh, okay. Is he merging those two characters together? I get it. Cause he's not M technically he's Moriarty, you know, but I was like, that's, that's an interesting thing. Cause James Bond would, you know, answer to M later on. Yeah. Like, yeah. You know, so it's like, the code name, but it's also for, yeah, sure. Clever little twist. I mean, yeah. I okay. mean, I mean, you saw it coming like that, it, from the very beginning that, you know, you, you knew it wasn't Mycroft Holmes, <laughs> but, but, you know, I also, you know, it's not something that you would guess. And, and I don't feel like it's like a complete out of nowhere thing. It feels like, you know, like it works. It's in a the world. good, like if you know Sherlock Holmes, you're expecting like it plants a seed of that. And then it's like, oh, but it's the other guy. Yeah. The other M. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, okay. Yeah I, yeah. I do like it. Yeah. Um, so the, the next issue, issue five, um, we get a flashback to Moriarty and Holmes, uh, kind of their final conflict in which, uh, Moriarty plunges down the waterfall, but is rescued by Campion Bond. Uh, Holmes is presumed dead. Um, cut back to the current conversation and Moriarty is, you know, talks and waxes poetic about how he is both the director of MI5 and a crime Lord, but which is the truth? Which one is he really? And all that stuff. And he gives his little villain speech, basically. He's got a real Mr. Burns energy. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And kind of looks like him a little. A lot. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's one of the characters where like in different panels, his proportions are different. Yeah. And like his features. He's definitely like, he feels um when they, uh, he's con- like amorphous when they confront him on the uh, top of the warship at the end. Um, he feels like he's taller. Yeah. Than he's perceived in this first, like, you know, instance at least. Um, but you know, I mean, you know, it's whatever. Sure. <laughs> it didn't really bug me too much, but, um, you know, uh, he then goes on about how they have to eliminate the threat of East London and like strike quickly while, you know, they can, um, revealing that he has his own warship that is operational now with the Cavarite, uh, bond and Moriarty leave to initiate their attack, leaving Griffin in the room to chuckle. Uh, and you know, like we were just saying, as far as like expository, like villain plan speeches go, it, this hits like you know, to me, all the good marks and doesn't feel like super forced because he's not like doing it at the, uh, you know, his enemies. He's literally just kind of going over like, you know, the plan and initiating like what they're about to do, which is like, you know, not necessarily what they had talked about because they weren't sure when they were going to retrieve the Cavarite and all that stuff. So it's it's kind of a it doesn't feel too forced or anything like that. In this panel down here, he's actually doing like the tented fingers like the Mr. Burns. It's a classic move. You got to know he's a bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How else would we know? Yeah. I don't know. He just said his name was James. I was like, I know somebody named James. They're nice. I know bad Jameses too, though. Oh, It's really? 50-50. Really? Yeah. How many Jameses do you know? Six. Three of them are bad. I'm trying to think which ones are bad. Talk about it off the air. Yeah. I don't want to name last names. <laughs> but uh, So back at the Nautilus, uh, 
we get <laughs> this is the the very Ross and Rachel the the cutesy dueling scenes where Mina and Alan complain about each other to Jekyll and Nemo respectively, uh, <laughs> uh, who who both state how they must be smitten with each other. You know, no, we're getting into Sam and Diane territory with this, this one. Is Sam and Diane, yeah, which I thought you would love. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, it's, the, there's just has not been time for for actual character growth. Yeah, there you know? there's a again. Um, it's like, you're stinky. No, you're stinky. Uh, she's stinky. And, and then they kiss. I can't stand how stinky she is. Yeah. But wait, I want to kiss her. <laughs> <laughs> this is elaborated a lot more on. Is that love? The, uh, <laughs> this goes a lot more into the uh, volume two stuff. Like, you know, obviously like all this is kind of set up because I think this is really like the last moment you get of that. Like them at least directly talking about it. They do, they do confront uh, Moriarty together. But there's, you know, no more inclination of like, no, I love you or whatever or anything. When they're like going that. down on the balloon. You remember that? And she's like, hold me. Oh, hold yeah. She does say hold me. me. And then there's this panel. We're not there yet, but. Well, that's just expected in the Victorian era. There's a panel where they basically kiss. But let's go on. But yeah. Well, they think they're going to die. Anyway, so <laughs> Griffin works his way back uh, and he senselessly kind of kills a, uh, a uh, police officer. And steals his uniform just because, I mean, as far as we can tell, he just thinks it's funny, you know. Yeah. And uh, when, when he's he get, a bad guy, yeah. Oh, he's a bad man. But so when when he gets back to the Nautilus, uh, the League is kind of appalled by his careless actions, but are more shocked at the truth uh, to learn of Moriarty. And uh, they try to start a contingency plan pretty quick um, as the evil-looking warship kind of just enters the sky. That's the last panel of that issue. Um, so the warship begins raining fire down on East London, destroying homes, you know, people, everything. Luckily, Nemo unleashes a hot air balloon, so they have a chance to reach the ship. Uh, the doctor, uh, the warlord doctor, also has uh, contingencies and gives the order to attack. Uh, so these warriors on, like, kites and shit and aerial cannons start going off everywhere. Um, it's just, like, crazy, like, full-blown war popping off in East London. Uh, the league is able to float up to the warship uh, while all this chaos erupts. And when they get aboard, Mina slaps Jekyll to get him to change. Uh, Hyde and Nemo take on the uh, brunt of soldiers in the ship, and Nemo starts mowing them down with, uh, you know, his his future guns. And Hyde is ripping people apart and stuff. And uh, Griffin's disappeared. You know, he just he just fucks off or whatever. You know, and they're like they're like where is he? And they're like no matter no no time for that. And Mina and Alan head to the top of the ship to confront Moriarty. Uh, I like how, like, Moriarty, <laughs> when when Mina first pops up, uh, how he just, he he avoids the, the villain speech to his enemies. Like, he just, it, like, he doesn't bother to explain himself to them at all. Like, Mina starts on this dialogue about how she respects him, and he interrupts her, and he literally just says, yes, 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 Sergeant, throw the smelly lesbian over the side. <laughs> like, uh, I, I, I appreciated the smelly lesbian line. Uh, it's like, was, it's kind of fucking out of nowhere. A weird, funny line. It's just like, what, wait, what? oh, he's a bad guy. Like, <laughs> this guy sucks. But, like, I like how he just, he does not fuck around, like, you know, at all. He's just like, like, get them the fuck off here, you know? Like, people are trying to stop me. And, um... Alan tells Mina to get down at that part and starts firing on the men. Uh, Moriarty uses a human shield and fires back, hitting Alan in the shoulder. Um, as he's about to shoot Alan in the head, Mina takes a big, like, wrench that she finds. See, like, Moriarty wouldn't be on this ship. Why not? Why would he be? 
Because he wants to witness his destruction. He's destroying the entire East End. Moriarty would be in Paris, like, drinking a tea. I guess. I don't know. He was there. He wanted to be there with the Capra. It's just not a good chess move for him. I guess. Well, that's why Holmes always beat him. Did he, though? Sure. I think it was, like, back and forth till the end. Who won last, though? I don't know. I didn't read those. Uh, we, I just saw the. I saw the. Well, you read all of them, and then we'll we'll get, we'll figure it out. I saw the Benedict Cumberbatch one. <laughs> That's what you base it off. Of. <laughs> it's Pretty close. Benedict Cumberbatch one is with canon. Bilbo. Is canon? Yeah. More canon than the Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law ones. Those were good too. Those though. are good though. I do like those movies actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like, me, Mina like takes a big wrench, and uh, you think that she's gonna, you know hit Moriarty, but she actually smashes the Cavorite device, unleashing the material, which, you know, starts to float away and causing, you know, everything to fall. Um, Moriarty grabs it hysterically, and uh, as Mina puts it very poetically, that he he's falling into the sky. Hmm. That's the end of him, you know? Presumably. Poetic. Yeah. But the League rush back uh, to the balloon and find Griffin trying to prematurely escape without them. Uh, they all hop on, including Hyde, who weighs it down too much and they begin to fall with everything else. And like we were just saying, uh, Mina and Alan have like the, the moment where she's like, hold me, you know, look in this panel. Let's see right here. They're kissing right off panel. Oh, right. Or they're just staring awkwardly close mouth to mouth. Maybe. All right. Maybe that's how they like it. I think it's purposely air, ki- air kisses purposefully ambiguous. Yeah. Even though we just full blown see it in the next volume, but you know, but we'll tease, (laughs) but they all landed the water, presumably to their deaths. If it wasn't for the, you know, the old crew of the Nautilus, Ishmael and them, they're waiting there. Deus Ex Machina. Yeah. Every issue. They're waiting there. Yeah. And and a short time later, a new head of intelligence. Now, actually, Mycroft Holmes uh, congratulates the league on a job well done. Uh, He offers to keep them on retainer and doubles their previous offer. Uh, Alan remarks that he's paying them a lot now to just sit and do nothing to which Mina responds that, uh, these are tumultuous times and she is sure something that, that something will come up. Um, and our last page reveal is some ominous looking lanterns falling from the sky. And they say, what are we supposed to be? Some kind of league of extraordinary gentlemen? And Will Smith pops in. No. And then, and then Mina says, make that gentle women. <laughs> that would be the new movie. Yeah, that is the end of volume one of the league of extraordinary gentlemen. So, um, yeah, you know, uh, we'll get into some overall thoughts. Um, I don't know if you had any, uh, like notes or thoughts you wanted to bring up in particular. I do have like kind of some prompt questions to ask you because I feel like I've been pretty forward about the stuff that I like about the story. Um, Oh, let's see. I got notes probably, but yeah. why, why don't you start? Well, uh, I mean, first and foremost, I mean, uh, I'm kind of curious to what you think about Alan Moore's writing like for this story. Cause is, is this the first time you've read like an Alan Moore book to my knowledge? Yeah. Like you've never read Watchmen or anything like that. Right. No. Like, okay. I thought that maybe you might've, but I wasn't sure. And I was like, I know you haven't read like, you know, Swamp Thing or Promethea or anything like that. And like, I've seen, I've for sure seen like cartoons and movies based on his stuff. Yeah. But I don't know if I've read killing joke or I don't know anything about Swamp Thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, well, what what did you think of his of his writing? I mean, like, obviously, he's aiming for a really specific style in this one. Um, um, it's fun. This is like it's fun and campy. Yeah, and like silly gory. 
it's going in a silly way. Yeah. Which doesn't always work, but it works sometimes. Um, I think it, I think it stays pretty consistent. Like, because even when the gore stuff happens, just because of the, the style of it, it does like, it doesn't take me out, but it, it pulls me back a sec just because I'm like, oh yeah, like shit, like stuff like this can happen or whatever in this yeah. world or whatever. But then like they throw in rapes and stuff in the same tone. Yeah. And it's like, all right, well. And you're like, well shit, yeah. <laughs> not and, and then it's like, is rape worse than murder? Or And then, I don't know, and then I get too like in my own head. Yeah. yeah. Not that that matters, but uh, it is what it is. And I think, honestly, I think the, I think the narrative goes way too fast. I think there's no character development or anything. Yeah. But it is, it's a fun A to B to C story. And it is like the intro for these characters too. Like, yeah. I mean, you do get a lot more. Yeah. Act one is kind of just, I don't want to say wasted, but it's spent getting them together. Yeah. In a, a hustled way. When I would like to see this whole thing, them developing a team. Yeah. And, and you know, I thought about that when we were, when we decided to do this. Um, but I didn't want to like overload and make us do too much, um, you know, for the one episode, but like, I do kind of feel like, uh, volume one and two at least are like almost required to be read together, you know, for like the, the full view of it, um, at least to get it because like volume three is different. Cause it's more like, it's more like three graphic novels that take place in a different year. Like, you know, that they do follow like their own narrative, but it's, it's, it's different, you know, and it hops around a lot more. And volume four is like its own fucking crazy thing that just came out like a couple years ago. So it's like, but really, they're still doing them. The four was the last one. And that's what Moore says would be. Do he, they release these issue by issue? Like, uh, yeah, yeah. They would come out as issues and, um, uh, you know, then produce the hard covers or the, the trades and stuff. But for though, the last one that did come out, um, that was Alan Moore said it would be his last comic. Like he, the last thing he was producing as a comic book writer, like he's officially retired. (laughs) Jesus. He's officially officially retired now. Jesus. (laughs) But well, um, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to say I don't like the writing because it, it is just what it is, but it's like, they get together, they get the thing, there's a twist, and then they beat the guy. Yeah. You know, and it it's like it it really could have been expanded on. Yeah. But I think that like with the way that he incorporates the personalities of the characters and granted you shouldn't have to do the homework of knowing everything about all these characters, especially considering like, you know, in the case of like Mina it's not really a version that's from the novels per se. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, we don't know what happened between the novel and, and now, you know, <laughs> like it's a, because I mean, like I said, at the end of that book, she's not divorced or anything, you know, it's like, yeah. a, and, and so it's, it's, a, it's, there's some interpretation going on there, you know, but I think that most of the interpretation stuff is pretty I, small, at I, least like the inferring of his own kind of version of the characters. Yeah. And like, I love, I love the concept. I yeah. love what he did. And like, it's a really interesting thing to get all these, you know, classic separate characters together and do an Avengers with them. Like, yeah. Hey, what if, you know, and, and, um, and you could tell that he really like, maybe not loves, but like just, uh, is very informed on all of the characters, like just the way that they all talk and stuff. It's like, I mean, they're all very distinct Yeah, and, and it feels authentic to the way of, you know, I haven't read every novel of every character 
present in this story, but like the ones that I have, it feels like those characters, you know, like it, like he took them from the original source material. And yeah. Put or it like older grizzled versions of them. Yeah. Yeah. Especially uh, with, you know, Quartermain, obviously. But, so like, I like the writing and the story and the concept, but I would have liked more like humanness to it and more. Yeah. Uh, and I do feel you get that with volume two yeah. a bit more. So it, then it, there it is. Maybe I, this is just half a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean like, um, volume one and volume two were released like pretty back to back. Um, even though it took a long time for the issues to come out, like they would start the series. And I think like on both series, they got issues one, two, and three out like, you know, within the monthly, like I said, but then like something between like four and five and six for like the latter half of both those series, like seemed like they just took forever to come out, like for whatever reason, you know, um, just time constraints or whatever more has a habit of doing that, you know, I mean, and, and a lot of time too, I mean, it's not just him. It could be like, you know, the artists like as well, just, you know, being too busy or not having time to get it right or, or as good as they want it. Um, but yeah, I, I will say, um, just in, in to cap it off on, on Moore's writing here, like, I will say that with this being your first like read of his stuff, it was mine too. And it's honestly, I feel like it's kind of a weird one. But when I thought about that, like when I wrote that down, I was like, you know what? Like, I think that like everything that he writes, like anywhere you go is probably like a weird start because it's also different, you know? Like, I mean, like it's just, he, he really goes all in on whatever project he's doing. He's such a like passionate, like, writer you know that like he he will give it his all he will not fucking phone it in you know and like everything that he does like he challenges himself and like his his writing style will be different the tone will be different the subject matter is all over the place you know and like it's a i think that just with his writing per se like it's it's impossible to just read one of his series and get like the picture of what he is and what he's doing you know like it's a it's it's one of those things where the more that you read of his, the more you just like get it. And it, and it elevates all of his work once you're starting to like, it starts to gel with your head and like, it, it, like so many people, you know, if you like his style, at least, um, it just, uh, just becomes a whole other thing. And that's why he's such a fascinating, you know, figure like in the comic book world, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I guess then looking at this as just kind of a teaser or a primer into a larger thing, um, I guess that's just a different perspective. Yeah. What about, uh, what about Kevin O'Neill's art? I'm torn on that as well. Like it's, it's, I like the, I like that it's very classic, like. It's quintessentially comic book. Yeah. It's line shading and like, um, I think at times it's a little too like severe or grotesque. Yeah. Uh, But, but that does work at times as well. It's, it's one of those things where like when Moore writes that, like. I don't know how else I would want him to depict it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's like, I don't want him to like shy away from it because I feel like that impact is necessary for those moments. Yeah. But I guess like, just some of the character designs and the faces, get yeah. a little too, they're, they're, it's like what we were talking about with Mr. Hyde earlier too. It's like, I, me personally, I've never like, I wouldn't say I dislike the design. It's just like, it's never like appealed to me that much. Like I, I'm much more just attack attached to him as a character. Yeah. Like, and, and, yeah. you know, especially in volume two, like I get excited when he, when he has his parts, cause he's, you know, got a big role to play in that story. And like, um, yeah, no, it's just, uh, so there's a lot, there's a lot that I do like about it. Yeah. Um, um, 
I think, uh, too, one thing that I was kind of being critical on in this last read through really trying to think like, okay, like the art, like what don't I like about it or what, what do I think is weird? And I came up with like the characters and maybe it's just because he's, he's emulating that like pulpy classic comic book style, but he, uh, it's, it's like the characters come off very stiff in the panels, but that's counterbalanced to me because, uh, the motion that's used in those like moments where, you know, like the, like an action scene or movement or, you know, something that's played up for like a humorous, like, you know, turn, like creates the enough motion to me where it doesn't feel like just static images, like all the time, you know, like there, there is a, uh, a good motion and a good pace to the book. Yeah. I would agree with that. And there's always a lot going on. Yeah. Panel. Like yeah. maybe, maybe too much, um, at times. Yeah. It's, and, and it's, very monochromatic and drab in a lot of it, which is it's 1800s London at nighttime. Yeah. Which makes sense. Yeah. So like, I totally understand a lot of the stylistic decisions. And I will say, dude, like, okay, so that's kind of a good segue for me to just mention this real quick, but I want to talk about how insanely in depth, uh, people have picked this like series apart. Like, I know that we just did like the story and for some of the listeners who are fans of this book, uh, might be a bit disappointed, <laughs> um, uh, with our analysis because, you know, we're just straight up talking about the story and the narrative, you know, we didn't like deep dive every reference or anything like that, but I think it's worth, worth it to show, uh, you know, the, the merit of the narrative on well, its own. Next, next episode, we're going to talk about the minds of King Solomon. Oh yeah. <laughs> book club. <laughs> but I would do that. I feel I you know, I feel like this story gets lost in that a lot because so many of the fans are like you know, just just hyperactively looking for like you know, every reference and and all the all the brilliant little things that are in each panel that like the narrative kind of gets lost and I feel like it's uh, important to talk about it on its own, you know, because I mean, say if like you don't know really anything about any of these characters, like is this story worth it? You know what I mean? Like that, that's, that was kind of my big question. I th I think and the like, value of this is that it would get you into those characters. Yeah. Yeah. Which it totally like did it, for these me. Are characters with a lot of back stories. Yeah. And, and it totally did that for me. Um, you know, it's a, but yeah, it's I, really, I, it's like just, it's large scale fan fiction. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, people just forget about like the base narrative a lot with the series and it kind of just becomes like an Easter egg hunt for a lot of people online. But like, you know, us dummies can like it too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. I can read. Oh, I will. I will. I did just want to plug this too real quick, but like if you like any of the listeners are so interested, like please check out the, uh, um, website, jessnevins.com for like the definitive annotations that break down like every reference in crazy detail. Like you click on like the issue number and it's like 90 pages of just like page one panel one this is a reference from this movie more has cited before you know and all this stuff and like he he moves his hand just like how he does in this and like it's so specific like it's like more scripts for this shit must have been like insanely detailed and long because more has like seen those annotations and been like i'm so happy that people are like finding this stuff you know <laughs> like it's <laughs> but, that's cool but it's so in-depth man it's it's crazy and like I, I mean like i think i've i've read scripts of moore's before but I think the ones that I've read were mostly like his swamp thing. And I think there's some in like the like 
absolute edition of the killing joke. There's, there's like some scripting in the back and stuff, but like it's nowhere nearly as like, and he's, he's a very detailed, like, you know, comic writer, like he, you know, page one, panel one, like, you know, this is going on, this is going on, this has to be this way, blah, blah, blah. Like so much detail for every single thing. But like, this feels like this was like his ultimate, like, you know, just delve into like, everything is something, you know, like all the time, which, which is fun to, to dive into, but like, yeah, we weren't going to fucking do that <laughs> on this podcast. No. Uh, but yeah, so like, uh, I guess, um, was, was it, um, you know, just from knowing the movie to bring the movie back into this, was this tonally kind of what you expected? I, I think so. I think I expected a little more depth to it, to, to even this. Yeah. You know, like, there is a lot more depth to this than there is to the movie, but I, I think I expected something with like more philosophical, like undercurrent. More like, uh, almost like purple prose, like waxing about stuff and like, you know, going into detail with characters more and whatnot. I yeah. Guess. Like, cause, Cause I mean, especially a lot of these characters and not, not really all of them. Some of them like Quartermain is just like a kid's adventure book, you know, like, yeah, but some of these are, are real like philosophical philosophically grounded concepts and characters like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and shit. And they just turn him into like the incredible Hulk, you know? Yeah. Which I thought like in the movie, I was like, that's silly that they did that. And, yeah. but then they did it in the but book. It, yeah. You know? Yeah. So that, like, that is, that is somewhat accurate. Yeah. yeah. So it's, which he just doesn't have the top hat. Yeah. Which is not a problem to it. It's just, um, yeah, I guess I thought that, that there would be a little bit more characterization, uh, and, and depth, to the story and yeah and i think that's fair enough you know i mean um i don't know for me like uh it comes back to just the fact that i just i just love this concept which we've both said you yeah. know i mean uh it's uh, this is still very much like a and not like derogatorily but like a aimed at teenagers kind of like action story yeah know? yeah which is cool yeah i think it's really neat too that like more wrote this and like essentially the the background information in an extended universe would just get people to read classic novels. Yeah. Like, I mean, like that's, that's kind of cool, you know, For sure. <laughs> like, it's like, I think that was a total success. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, it worked on me. Mm -hmm. I definitely read some stuff that I wouldn't have read otherwise, you know, because of this story. But, um, yeah, I, Oh, um, I will mention too, just, uh, I, I, I set it up, uh, during the story recap, but, um, you know, I was kind of surprised rereading volume one for this and, and seeing how many of the, uh, like plot threads are left hanging like that. I just kind of assumed were like either all encompassed in volume two or all encompassed in volume one, but it's, it's very much like a, you know, part one and part two narrative like that, that I discovered upon this reread. Sure. Um, because yeah, I mean like, you know, you get you know, Mina's and Alan's romance, uh, hides lies to Griffin, you know, etc. You know, there's, there's a few things that are just Dude, no spoilies. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I mean like, you know, I, I won't spoil because like I said, we, we will probably do it eventually a part two for this one. Um, but yeah, there, there are some very, like we, we mentioned it a little earlier as well, but, um, there's some very uncomfortable moments, you know, dealing with rape, racism, gender equality, things like that. But like, I feel it's more in context of the source material and therefore can be examined in that way. I mean, like, again, that just kind of speaks to me, to the authenticity that Moore was just going for in this um and I, I think it's just like a valuable thing to read you know in, in context of that um and 
you know, not speaking as like, you know, this classic literary thing, but like more just like taking those ideas and like putting them into a modern story that can, you know, spark those conversations. And that's kind of nice. You know? And you're talking about like, start over a little bit. Oh, what? Yeah. What concepts are you talking about? I was just saying like, you know, the stuff that the, the more uncomfortable stuff that, that they, that they, the, you know, deal with like, you know, the racism and the, race and rape and, you know, the sure. gender equality stuff, I guess is, is, is kind of prevalent. It's played more for jokes, like, you know, but, uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's very much, um, it's, it's pretty like authentic to the time. I think maybe. Like, yeah. I, and I think the characters, I think it's honestly like toned down, uh, than it would be, you know, like if you read yeah. the minds of King Solomon, it's like, it's rough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's in Africa, like running away from natives Yeah, and, and they, in all their 1800s glory described them. Jesus. Yeah. So, I mean, this is like, it's a 1999 perspective on people from the 1880s, yeah. which is tough to do tastefully. And I, and the, the, the fact that they played it as kind of a giggle, um, like, I, I, I don't know, like I said, it, it's a way to do it and to bring it up and not shy away from it. Um, and I think for the most part it works, you yeah. know, but like, I'm not, a woman or a minority. So it's like, I don't know how I'd feel. Yeah. You know I, mean, I mean, we're not, we're not, yeah. I mean, we're, we're not, we're, we can't speak for them, obviously, you know, I'm not two, two white police, guys, you know, two white guys, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, it's very 1999 the way they played with that. And I don't think it's, uh, offensive or anything. Yeah. You know? Um, and I like that they didn't just not include it. Yeah. I like think that that movie. would that would be like irresponsible at that point, yeah. you know. If you're gonna if you're gonna take from all but, of those things, you but know. But at the same time, they didn't maybe villainize them the way they should, or yeah, you know, I like, don't know because it's like still like some of them, it's like that Griffin. I ought to knock his block oh, off. Oh, dude, Griffin in volume two, like I won't spoil the exact stuff, but like you are definitely not supposed to like okay. <laughs> Griffin at all. That's probably and, and kind of the same thing with Hyde, like. You know, Hyde has has a racist comment in the in the book as well too. That I won't say comes out of nowhere. It's just it's just more like it, like you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, don't like don't like him. Yeah. You know, but, but but uh, you know, yeah, it's I mean, Moore is definitely a fan of uh, not presenting just good and just bad characters. You know, I mean, like yeah. he's eternally gray with his characters. But um, yeah. So I mean, uh, unless if you have um. Uh, anything specific that you wanted to bring up here? Um, I have uh, two final questions for you. Shoot. One is, and we've already covered this, but I wrote this before uh, I rewatched the movie today, but I put, so the ultimate question, do you see how the movie is bad now? <laughs> of course I see. Oh, I, yes, I see how the movie is bad, not because I read this. Not because you read it. I understand, yeah. Because the movie is just is fucking pointless and <laughs> yeah. doesn't make sense. Um I just like like my 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 fan my fan reaction brain watching it today and, and you know, after freshly reading this twice for this podcast, like I was like I was like, it's just what the fuck? Like by, you know <laughs> By the point where I mean, first of all, they get quarter main there in the room and then it's like everyone just walks in and it's like oh god it's just it's that fast yeah and then by the point where they're on the boat i was like at least more and kevin o'neill took two issues to get them together you know like, it's yeah like- <laughs> and the point they were on the boat and it's tom sawyer and alan quarter main and alan quarter like 
you know, I used to have a boy once. <laughs> it's like, what the and then fuck? He, and then let, <laughs> let me let me show you. Take your time with the gun. It's like it's basically like he wraps his arm or, arms around him. He's like, pull the trigger, son. It's like, what a weird father son romance to shoehorn <laughs> in this. Very weird. But that's more character development that was in this. I suppose. I suppose that they they tried. A little bit there. A little bit, yeah. They tried Which, to do something. I don't know what they were trying, but they were trying something. But yeah, like, I, I actually had a thought um, while I was watching the movie, and I was like, man, what if they took this concept, and granted, this would probably just piss, like, diehard fans of the book off more, but I think it would be fun, and at least, like, an original idea, but what if they did The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen as a movie but like with like classic movie people, <laughs> it's like it was like more about like actual people like from movies, you know, like adventure movies or something like that. What are you like, talking about? Like the Expendables? Kind of. They did that. But no, no. But I mean, like, um, like with actual like old school, like movie characters, mm-hmm. like, you know, from like classic films or whatever. Like Rambo meets. I would go back further, hard. further than Rambo. But yeah, I guess the Expendables is that, but not, that's not what I'm thinking. I'm yeah. thinking like classic, classic I'm st- films. I'm stuck on that. Yeah, like you know, uh, they like were we're, they were about to do the Universal movie monster mashup. Oh, that was a shared universe, though. That was bad. Isn't that what you're talking about? Um, this is a shared universe. Yeah, I guess that's exactly what you're saying. Never mind. That's a bad idea. Yes, <sighs> things should be their own thing. Yeah, I think most of the time. This is a fun. I just think the concept could work with like it's a fun thought. Concept. Swap them all out instead of for for classic film, like you know protagonists or whatever, and like like Dorothy sure. and King Kong. Yeah, I'd watch Dorothy and King Kong. I would watch that, and the Three Stooges. Yeah, you said classic. I went thirties. <laughs> the three the Three Stooges just fucking gritty and raping people or whatever. <laughs> They're just the invisible. It was a man. different time. We're yeah. not, we're not shying away from the darkness of the thirties. <laughs> okay. I never, I've, I've one eighty again on that. I would, I would watch that, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know, man, the movie, although I had a more fun time watching it this time, uh, you know, I super zoned out. <clears throat> yeah. It's a, it's, it's a fun, like, painful watch i think yeah. a lot of the time with like a cool concept and then oh and the part where dorian gray like got her with the stake and he's like i just wanted to nail you again <laughs> it's like what the <laughs> fuck is this it's an old boy the stat the first time you broke my heart you missed it this time <laughs> <laughs> i love when like it's first revealed that she's a vampire and she like has the stereotypical like bloodlust thing. Yeah. And then like after she bites that dude for like five seconds, she's just like rubbing her face. And you're like, oh, she took lessons from Lestat. <laughs> it was the times. <laughs> yeah, it was the times. That was how we did vampires then. <laughs> horrible time. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, I do think it's, I mean, it's been said to death, but you know, just the fact that that movie, you know, made Sean Connery retire. Apparently the director retired too. That's sad. Yeah. Cause like it kids liked it. Yeah. I liked it. I can vouch for me as Brett a kid. I liked it. Yeah. I, I, I had friends that liked it. Who? Justin. Fuck. But we loved it. 
Shout out to Justin <laughs> for like a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But yeah, I mean, that movie was also the uh, just fact, just fun fact. Um, the last time, uh, this was what this was the movie that sparked more to uh, never take uh, credit or um, royalties from adaptations of his work ever again. <laughs> he was like, "Good call, not doing it." Yeah. He's like, "Just give it to give it, it to wasn't the, like, the artists if they want it." Wasn't like Watchmen after that. Mm-hmm. He oh, didn't. He didn't take. Oh my god. <laughs> he didn't take the. So money. he. Wow. Yeah, he gave it to Dave Gibbons, the artist. He said, give my portion to Dave. That's insane. I really respect that. I guess, but I, I mean, does he not have rights to say, no, don't fucking do that anymore? Don't make this movie? With uh, with certain properties, he doesn't. Like the ones that are technically owned by, you know, Warner Brothers DC. Like, who, did, who did Sin City? That's not Frank him. Miller. Okay. Yeah. He did Dead, uh, uh, Daredevil. Yeah, he did Daredevil. Yeah. I get them mixed up. Yeah. They're they're both very like, you know, came up like pretty nineties guys. Yeah, well, eighties like, but uh, okay. but into the nineties. But Moore's definitely, uh, I'd say, holds a much more prestigious uh, track record with his stuff. Frank Miller kind of went off the rails, you know, at some point. Um, but Frank Miller, you know, both of them are like titans, you know, in terms of like their contributions and just like their the great stuff they did is like just lauded still today as like some of the best shit ever done. They're, they're in the 15 or so comic book guys names that I know. There we go. Yeah. Which is good. I didn't even have to bring it up. I like that. Oh, Stanley. Go to him. I'm so excited to, um, maybe I'll say this after I ask this for you, but, um, uh, so yeah, final question. Uh, so overall, what'd you think worth a pull it or drop it? League of extraordinary gentlemen, volume one. I'm going to do a show first. I'm taking plan C. Wait, wait for number two. Wait for number two. Okay. Okay. We got, we got trade weight. Mm-hmm. We'll call that trade weight. Trade waiting. Trade waiting. Okay. All right. That's fair enough. If, uh, if I would have reread this before I put it on the list, we would have done both volumes. I think yeah. for sure. There's uh, not enough here for me to hate or love. I understand. I understand. I think that with volume two, you would, you know, you'd have enough perspective to, uh, make a, make a decision on that. Sure. Um, but, um, yeah. So, um, uh, that's, that's in conclusion. That's a, that's a trade weight there. We'll see. We'll see if he'll, he'll pull it after we do volume two one day, but, um, I went uh, for the secret off the menu item. That's That's true. People didn't know they could do that. You got to read between the lines guys. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. It's a fine print, fine print, fine print. But yeah. Um, no, I am very excited to, uh, get started with with you on this just because i think like out of all the guests that i have talked to and planned out like books with your books i don't know why and maybe it's just because we've you know hung out more than anybody (laughs) that i know um but the books that i've picked for you and ones that we're gonna do are just some of the most like stuff i have fond memories of and like just uh you know fun stuff that we're gonna we're gonna go over um we're going to do some, some old school stuff. Uh, we're going to do some, you know, modern stuff that I think you'll actually like. <laughs> and, uh, you gotta hit and, me with the comics for dummies first. Yeah. Yeah. No, and this might've been a little in, too in depth. Hey, you picked this. I like, <laughs> yeah, this you picked this sure. first. I probably would, I probably would have waited on this for a little bit and then we get into the annotations. God, <laughs> just, I, I hope the day doesn't come where you start giving me the, whatever you call slice of life dramas. Yeah. That just doesn't sound good. 
mean, it depends. Or like the anime school ones that you like. What? I don't know. The ones where the anime kids go to school and they talk about boyfriends. I don't think I've read any of those. Yes, I've seen you. I've seen you read them. See me read what? I don't know. Name one. Name five right now. I don't know. It was a manga sitting on your coffee table. Name once. eight right now. It was, uh, fuck, I don't, I can't say anything without sounding like <laughs> offensive. And... <laughs> Next segment. Okay, fine. Yeah, well, um, that's the end then. <laughs> uh, there you have it, folks. Uh, thanks for listening. If you want to support this podcast, please check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash none of my friends like comics. That way we can continue to provide you with even more great content. Uh, it's never expected, but always appreciated. You can follow the show on Twitter at no comic friends. Uh, or you can email the show with your comments, opinions, thoughts at none of my friends like comics at gmail.com. And if you mark it okay to air, uh, we'll, we'll read it on the air and talk about whatever you want to talk about, really. It's cool. As long as it's, you know, not too mean. Um, <laughs> but, uh, we're entirely self-funded and just want to get the word out. So tell all your friends and family who might be interested in this to give us a listen. We're on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Um, also, I just want to throw in something real quick. I doubt he's actively listening. But just a quick thank you to uh, Sean Phillips, the artist of the book we did on our first episode, Killer Be Killed. Uh, I posted this episode on Twitter and uh, we literally have like no followers and he like retweeted it and got some eyes on it. And I won't lie. It made me have a little kind of, you know, fanboyish freak out because I love Sean Phillips and he's great. So so thanks, Sean. Um, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks to all you for listening and uh, we will see you on the next page. Bye. Bye.